In the fight for climate action, language is key. How we define the effects of climate change and how we speak about those on the front lines determines how we perceive the climate crisis and what we can do about it. The term climate refugee is commonly used in Australian politics and media to categorize those facing displacement by climate disasters in the Pacific. But for many, uprooting their families and abandoning their homes is a last resort. So what does climate refugee even mean? Hafiday and welcome to Inherited. We share the work of young audio storytellers, hoping to uplift a new generation of climate advocacy. I'm your season host, Shailen Martos. This is season three, episode seven, Home and Away. As a child of Vietnamese immigrants, V Pham's understanding of the word refugee changed as she learned more about Pacifica climate action. Today, she shares the voices of young activists from the Pacific Islands, working to change the narrative that paints climate disasters as both inevitable and irreversible. Here's V Pham with Home and Away. Nook? The Vietnamese language uses this same word, nook, to refer to both water and country. Other languages often think of country to mean the earth upon which a nation rests. Like how in English, land and country are often used interchangeably. But for the Vietnamese, Water and country is the most natural association in the world. For generations, we've been fed by flooded rice fields. Our land is nurtured by river deltas, and the monsoon rains keep us healthy and strong. Water is our food, our livelihood, our home. I am a second-generation Vietnamese immigrant living in Australia. It's an interesting space to occupy, and it's probably pretty unsurprising then that I ended up studying and working in migration law for quite a few years. I've always been fascinated by people's movement around the world and how that impacts the way we conceive of and talk about concepts of home and belonging. It's not just in Vietnamese or English where land, water, and home blend. In Samoan, the word for land is also a homonym. For a lot of our Pacifica countries, a lot of our language will tell you the answers of how we're connected to, to our, our lands. Um, you know, the, the word, the Samoan word for land is also the same word that's used for placenta. You know, the land is like a living thing. It's, it's you know, what gives birth to like to our people, to everything that we eat, everything that we see. Um, and it's just so connected and ingrained into our culture. This is Mary Masalina Harm, a Pacific climate warrior. The Pacific climate warriors are a climate movement led by young activists from the Pacific Islands. Just like me, Mary is far from her ancestral land. We both live in the Australian city of Brisbane, or to use its First Nations name, Mianjin. So I was born in Canada, but raised on tribal country, so north of the Brisbane River. Um, my mum is from Samoa, and my dad is 
Chinese, but born and raised in Fiji. So I grew up most of my life here in Mianjin. Despite being one of the world's largest cities by territory, Mianjin is extremely socially tight. Locals jokingly call it a large country town, and I can barely meet new people without being able to count our mutual friends on both hands. Depending on who you ask, it's one of the best things about living here, or one of the worst. For Mary and I, two young women from migrant families living in the insular city of Mianjin, the connection was strong and instant. I felt a sense of kinship as soon as we started talking and reflecting on our relationships with our respective home countries. Living away from your ancestral homelands, it's kind of this natural calling that you always feel to like return home. Mm. Um, and so the idea of not being able to do that is, yeah, like you're saying, quite devastating. Almost immediately, Mary and I realised the tragic thing about growing up in an Australian city. We are so alienated from the land that supports us. Between my apartment and work is a 30-minute walk along a highway, with the Australian sun radiating off the concrete around me. Our supermarkets import the exact same produce all year round, regardless of the season. And for us living in Mianjin, we are in constant conflict with the floodplains on which our city is built. In our short lives, both Mary and I have experienced three supposedly once-in-a-lifetime floods. I remember my first one, age 11, on holiday, watching footage of the Brisbane River swelling into my street on TV. Standing in my house after the fact, the windows having been smashed in by neighbours hoping to save our valuables while we were away. Just last year, another flood left me couch surfing for a week as all roads to my house were deep underwater. Australian climate scientists are saying our floods will only get worse. We've been seeing extreme rainfall and flash flooding and hailstorms associated with the more moisture and the more thunderstorms that we see associated with the higher climate. It's important to understand that these are projected impacts, but unfortunately, there are also the impacts we've experienced across Australia in the most recent decade. These are the changes that we're seeing already. I often feel that our cities and infrastructure are built almost in spite of the land we occupy, rather than in harmony with it. It's hard to imagine a city-dwelling Australian likening their home to a placenta, to water, to nourishment. It just doesn't feel like our day-to-day language connects to the land and culture of Mianjin. While being separated by time and space, the Vietnamese and Pacifica diaspora in Australia have both experienced being the objects of hot debate within the Australian public consciousness. Back in the 80s, Australia received a wave of refugees fleeing war. Today, it nervously awaits another wave of refugees, this time fleeing the climate crisis. But despite this commonality, Mary and I nevertheless have very different relationships with the word refugee. For me, it's a word that embodies strength and history. It's a word that reflects the willingness of the Australian community to open their hearts. We can hear this in ABC clips from 1979 
a mere three years after Australia accepted its first Vietnamese refugees. I think uh, we all have to think in terms of the one world, one humanity. And uh, we all have international obligations to fulfil if it's going to be a peaceful world for everybody. Do you think we should take as many as we can fit in? Yes, I do, most definitely. And that I think that we should cooperate in, in many ways to uh, make sure that the needs of these people are fulfilled. Refugee is also a word that reflects the responsibility of the Australian government. I'm speaking to you today from Australia because 40 years ago, my mother and her family embarked across the ocean on the most significant journey of their lives. As people who had witnessed their country being torn to shreds by war and colonialism, Australia was a symbol of hope. While my family was sailing the seas and being processed in the refugee camps, Australia was undergoing its own journey of self-discovery. Government policy may have been welcoming, but society took a while to recalibrate. For a country still weaning off the white Australia policy only a few decades earlier, the wave of Southeast Asian immigrants, almost 100,000 strong, was paradigm shifting. At the time, the media hotly debated their arrival. Do you think it would cause racial hostility in this country, though? In this country, certainly. But the sooner we get that out of our systems, the better. We can wake up to where we are and what we're doing. My mother landed in Sydney, where she spent her teenage years. Then she moved to Mianjin and became a doctor. And she bought a house. And many years later, I would come into the story. Having studied and worked in migration law for nearly two years now, I'm still only scratching the surface when it comes to reflecting on my own family's journey to this land. It's almost impossible to imagine my own mother, a happy-go-lucky woman who indulges in gardening and retail therapy, as an 11-year-old girl on an overcrowded boat, surrounded by dark, stormy waters. Within these conversations about the asylum seekers, one thing that kept coming up again and again is this idea of governmental responsibility and obligation. Do you not think we have some responsibility to these people? Many of these people quite possibly will die or will starve as a result of not being able to find a place to go to. Right. Doesn't that fact at least temper your thinking? Jumping forward some 40 years, Journalists are asking the same questions about Pacific Islanders today. Australia likes to talk about the Pacific as family. That's the kind of language we, we hear. What obligations do we have to accept climate refugees from the Pacific if their islands become uninhabitable? Climate refugee. What a strange term. For many of us in the global north, the phrase climate refugee evokes post-apocalyptic images of tsunamis destroying cities, of buildings slipping into the sea, of people wading through knee-high waters in the streets. And there is an uncomfortable truth behind this. While Mianjin residents can wring out their clothes and persist for a couple years between floods, some Pacific islands are in danger of being submerged for good. This is an emerging reality, particularly for low-lying coral atoll nations like Tuvalu and Kiribati. However, it's still only a small snippet of what's going on. Families at home always say things like, you know, oh, the, the sand's moved or 
we can't have that crop now because it doesn't grow as fast or it doesn't grow at the time when it's meant to grow or when, you know, there's cultural um, attire, for example, certain things that we would normally use like flowers and whatnot aren't blooming when they're meant to bloom. As Mary describes it, the climate crisis isn't just buildings collapsing under huge tidal waves. It's a slow erosion of the life and culture that Pacifica communities have enjoyed for thousands of years. Um, And so there's significant changes in just our natural environment. And we wouldn't say like, oh, climate change is happening, but we're saying there's changes. Mm. Um, And our families on the ground can feel that and see that. Though the Pacific Islands are hardly alone in being affected by climate change, they are viewed in a unique light by mainstream Australian media and policymakers. Being on the front lines of climate change, as well as within Australia's sphere of geopolitical influence, means that Australia and the Pacific Island nations have had a long-standing relationship. Some Pacific Island nations, like Nauru, are former Australian colonies. The current Australian government, led by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, employs the phrase Pacific family to refer to our corner of the world. Australia unequivocally uh, supports the Pacific Island Forum. It's the body that is so important to bring together the Pacific family. And so, within climate discourse, this idea of Australia's responsibility keeps coming up. But responsibility to what, exactly? To open our borders to people fleeing sinking islands? Or responsibility to do something else? Something more proactive in preventing the climate crisis that's supposed to kickstart all this migration? The more I research this topic, the muddier the conversation seems to become. While the phrase climate refugee forms the basis for a lot of Pacific climate policy discussions, it's one that's legally shaky at best. To begin with, the legal framework around refugees is very specific. It only applies to people fleeing war or persecution based on political or social characteristics, say religion or ethnicity. For the Vietnamese immigrants of the 80s, like my family, the label applies easily. But Pacific Islanders seeking higher ground? Not so much. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If someone told you to jump off a cliff, would you do it? No. But there is something to be said about leaping into the unknown. That's what our podcast, Outside In, is all about. It's a safer way to explore all the weird, wonderful, and uncomfortable questions you have about the natural world. Like, what's it like to decompose? All of the germs and bacteria is saying, okay, baby, we gotta get rid of this person. Or, why the hell do we have lawns? Who the hell needs five acres of ornamental grass? I'm Nate Hedgie, host of Outside In, a podcast where curiosity and the natural world collide. 
Sometimes it's serious, sometimes it's ridiculous, but it's always a wild journey. That's outside slash in from New Hampshire Public Radio. In October 2017, New Zealand's climate change minister announced that they were considering bringing in an experimental climate change humanitarian visa targeting Pacific Islanders whose homes were being made uninhabitable by climate events. What we proposed is to set up a new humanitarian visa category because people who are displaced by climate change and rising seas are not recognised by the United Nations Refugee Agency as refugees, so we can't bring them in under the regular refugee program, resettlement program. However, after consulting with their Pacific neighbours, the New Zealand government dropped this climate visa program just six months later for the simple reason that Pacific Islanders did not want it. For many Pacifica peoples, leaving their homeland is an absolute last resort. Um, So, yeah, I I don't like the term personally. Mm -hmm. And I know for a lot of our communities in the Pacific, um, don't resonate with this term at all because it's not an option for us. It's not an option to to leave our homes. Um, And as someone living in the diaspora, um, I know for a fact that it's not an option for my old people at home as well. Hearing this was like a light bulb going off in my head. Once I thought about it, it did seem completely absurd to assume that Pacifica people are scrambling to leave their homes, the lands which have fed and sheltered them for generations. How arrogant to assume that their greatest concern is gaining permission to cross our borders, especially when it's wealthy, developed nations like Australia that contribute the most carbon emissions. For a while now, I've had pretty similar thoughts about Vietnamese migration stories. The Vietnam War was many things, not least a violent assertion of American imperial power. The damage that the US military caused to Vietnam's environment, infrastructure, economy, and society was absolutely devastating. As migrants, we've established thriving, happy communities in the countries where we eventually landed. And that's even after crossing open oceans and spending years in refugee camps. And don't get me wrong, I love my life and my community here in Australia, but I'll never forget why we were forced to leave. This is why Mary's words resonate with me so clearly now. If we actually listen to Pacifica voices, it becomes abundantly clear that climate refugee discourse misses a key point that Pacifica communities would prefer not to migrate at all. And it's really disheartening because, again, we're talking about families, we're talking about connection to land, we're talking about ancestry, we're talking about our old people who are buried, you know, next to our homes. Um, And the fact that we're jumping to this idea of climate refugee when we haven't even discussed, like, ways of stopping climate change is... Yeah, really disheartening. By focusing on migration eligibility criteria, Australian media distracts the mainstream discourse from things that actually matter, like our own climate obligations. Again, Pacifica people have been fighting relentlessly for climate justice. Just last year, a group of Indigenous Torres Strait Islanders won their complaint against the Australian government before the UN Human Rights Committee. 
the committee found that the Australian government had violated its human rights obligations by failing to adequately protect them from the impacts of climate change. It's still too early to tell what this means for Australian climate policy, so watch this space, I guess. Mary notes that the climate refugee narrative also undermines specific culture and agency. It presents the breakup of communities that have persisted for generations as simply an inevitable next step in the climate crisis, rather than a humanist tragedy. After all, visas are very individualistic tools for relocation. If you want to come to Australia, you can't come as a community. You have to come alone and start from scratch. And who wants that? So you would be the first climate refugees as a, as a nation? Well, I've always rejected the notion of refugees because um, it's not a nice term, okay? Whether it's the right term or not, I don't know. But uh, what, I'd like, what I've been advocating is a policy of uh, migration with dignity. And the reason is because we have the time, we know what's happening, and uh, we should be preparing, and which we are. The voice you just heard belongs to Anote Tong, the former president of Kiribati, a low-lying Pacific island nation prone to sea level rise. Like Mary, he finds the refugee label ill-fitting. It seems to imply a level of helplessness which ignores the fact we've known about climate change and its effects for decades. Likewise, Pacifica communities are strong and capable of mobilizing. They don't need our sympathy. Instead, they're asking for us to take responsibility for a crisis that's been a long time coming. Climate refugee is thus a phrase that originates from the vernacular of Australian mainstream climate policy space. It's not one that Pacifica people want to describe themselves. In fact, it often has no bearing on the material reality at all. Still, I think, you know, 99.9% of the time when I hear about the climate crisis on mainstream media, I don't see myself. I don't hear the voices of my people. I don't hear their cries. I don't hear their stories. I don't hear their song lines. Um, it definitely does not capture the resilience and the warrior spirit, I would say, of the Pacific at all. As they are on the front lines of climate change, Pacifica people should be leaders in the climate movement. Mary is part of the Pacific Climate Warriors, a movement for climate action run by young Pacifica organizers from all around the world. Their mission statement is to harness the power of Pacifica youth and change the narrative on climate. This is particularly important for Pacifica communities. When their stories make it into mainstream media, they are too often dominated by pessimism and despair. Yeah, it's such a weird term. I mean, in some ways, you would think that a term like that would put some urgency on the issue. Um, but in, on the other side, it also takes away from the fight that we're talking about. You know, using the, the term climate refugee is almost saying that it's too late. It's done. It's over. Um, it totally voids the topic of fighting for climate change and climate justice. Like, it 
paints us as victims of climate change and not leaders in this movement. The Pacific climate warriors are indeed a formidable force. Another warrior, Brianna Fruin, addressed world leaders at COP26. If you're looking for inspiration on this, look no further than the climate leadership of young Pacific people. We are not just victims to this crisis. We have been resilient beacons of hope. This kind of message is particularly important in Australia's political climate, where the climate refugee narrative is still widely used, despite many Pacifica people struggling to identify with it. The central premise treats Pacifica people as casualties of an inevitable doom, as another country's burden. Climate refugees are very different from climate warriors. If we only see the former being platformed in discussions about climate change, then we're destined to lose sight of what is possible. Watching a 60 Minutes episode on how the climate crisis will impact the Pacific Islands, I heard a lot of this pessimistic language once again. Ladies, you tell me, I mean, what's the, what's the future? We don't, we don't think we have future, but we just fight for our own life. We don't know what is the future. You, you don't think there is a future, Jean? I don't think of the real future. That's sad, isn't it? Do you mean by that, you think the whole island will eventually disappear? Yeah. Without doing anything, this island will be disappeared. And this has been your home? Yes. I don't know where to move. The loss of country on such a scale, there's no doubt it's an existentially horrifying prospect. When Pacifica people speak about their lands and their lives, it's our job to listen. However, Mary cautions against exclusively framing Pacifica stories through the lens of loss and failure. Again, we often hear this victim narrative, you know, those, those poor people, um, you know, how can we help them? That you know, They're sinking, they're drowning. Um, and the Pacific Climate Warriors, you know, we exist to change that narrative. You know, we're not drowning, we are fighting. That's the that's the mantra we rally behind because we believe that we have the solutions to fight the climate crisis. Once again, we can listen back to the words of another climate leader. Former Kiribati President Tong spoke to an interviewer on the UK's Channel 9 about what Kiribati stands to gain from the Paris Agreement. But if... If it is a foregone conclusion, no matter what happens, what's the point of a deal now? Well, what's the point? Well, we need to survive. We need to live. We have the right to be to, to do that. And I think we we are owed that by the international community. But you're you're saying your islands will be overrun regardless of the deal eventually. That you're already feeling the effects that the sea levels are okay. rising. What you're saying is, why are we participating in the whole process? What, what is to be gained from this process if, well, if that's going to happen anyway? This interview felt very jarring to me. I was frustrated by how the interviewer kept interrupting the then president with questions that implied climate action was futile. While I'm sure it wasn't the interviewer's intention, this segment seems to reflect Mary's warning. Treating Pacific Islanders as victims rather than respecting them as leaders means we give ourselves permission to just give up. The media does not paint a great picture. Very doom and gloom, very data heavy, very scientific heavy. Um, and it really lacks the, the stories and the, the spirit of our people. 
Anyone in activist spaces knows that this kind of rhetoric can be deadly to progress. Accepting Australia's fate as the bad guy feels to me like the easy way out. Not only do we betray ourselves, but we betray our communities and our neighbours. The climate movement can't sustain itself on despair and nihilism. It needs to be fueled by love and hope. I think that's what I found so inspiring about the Pacific Climate Warriors. They make me believe in an abundant world. And this is possible when you have that kind of love between community and country. When you build your society in a way that isn't destroyed by floods, but rather is fed by them. When people's connection to land is like a proverbial umbilical cord. It's warm, definitely warm. It's mm-hmm. tropical, tropical heat. This is Mary again, describing her homeland of Samoa. If you're in the village, like, you know, you're always here. The kids, you're here. The dogs, you're here. Like, all the livestock, whether you have pigs or chickens or, um, I don't know what, cows. Um, you'll hear the beach, the ocean. Um, and you'll often smell food, <laughs> food cooking, um, or, you know, fish because the uncles have just gone out to to grab some fish for the villagers. Um, there's always something happening, but there's also so much time for rest, which is, again, another Indigenous way of being and knowing. Um, it is a simple life, but a beautiful life. And it's a life worth fighting for, protecting the land, the thing that waters us, nourishes us, and gives birth to us. It's a noble fight. And so there's something undeniably inspiring about the Pacific Climate Warriors. Listening to the likes of Mary Messalina Harm, Brianna Fruin, and Anote Tong, they make it so easy to believe and to hope. I think that kind of message is crucial in these times. We need to dream of climate prosperity. We need to be brave enough to keep going. Hey there, it's Shaylin again. Thank you so much for listening to Home and Away by VFAM. That's all for this episode of Inherited. We'll return next week with an all-new episode featuring another impactful climate storyteller. And look out this Friday for a special bonus episode, a BTS interview with V on her inspirations for this piece and advice for young climate storytellers. Sainama Asi for joining us for episode seven. Next week is our final story of the season of Inherited, so make sure to tune in next Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Inherited is brought to you by YR Media, a national network of young journalists and artists creating content for this generation. We're distributed by Critical Frequency, a woman-run podcast network founded by journalists. The story Home and Away, featured in today's episode, was written, produced, and voiced by VFAM, an Inherited Season 3 storyteller. V would also like to thank Mary, her parents, and 4ZZZ Community Radio for use of their studio. I'm Shailen Martos, your season three host and producer. The co-creators and senior producers of Inherited are Georgia Wright and Jules Bradley. 
Our audio engineer is James Riley, and our audio engineering fellow is Christian Romo. Dominique French and Nige Turner provided production support, and our intern is Esther Omolola. Our executive producer is Amy Westervelt from Critical Frequency. YR's director of podcasting is Sam Chu, and our senior director of podcasting and partnerships is Rebecca Martin. Original music for this episode created by these young musicians at YR Media. Christian Romo, Anders Knudstad, Noah Holt, Jacob Armenta, Chaz Whitley, Michael Diaz, Sean Luciano Galarza, and Jay Mejia Quetza. Music direction by Oliver Cuya Rodriguez and Maya Drexler. Other music licensed from APM Music. Art for this episode created by YR's Marjorie Massacat. Art direction by Brigado Bautista. Michelle Rivera is our web designer. Project management from Eli Arberton. YR's creative director is Pedro Vega Jr. Special thanks to Maggie Taylor, Jasmine Burton, Siobhan Graham, Danielle Conley, and Kyra Kyles. Please throw us a rating or maybe even a review on the Apple Podcast app. It goes a long way towards getting these stories out there. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at InheritedPod. If you want to learn more about our show and this season's cohort of storytellers, head to our website at yr.media slash inherited. Sign up Asi for listening and see you next Wednesday.